0: I will be reading from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. Aleph. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. O that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Bit. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O oh Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Please be seated.
1: Good morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in God's word this morning? Father, we ask as we just... ...completed singing, we ask that you would speak to us, O Lord. That you would renew our minds this morning through your word. That you would help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. We thank you that we have before us in your word truths unchanged... From the dawn of time. Father we thank you. That you've given to us and provided for us. Your son Jesus. Your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Word. Your very presence with us. And this morning as we look to your word. I pray that you would guide our Thoughts Heavenward Christ word that we would look and fix our eyes upon you, that we would be quick to each day turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. As we do so, these things here on earth will grow strangely dim. Father, we praise you this morning for your word that gives us life. Your word that breathes encouragement into our soul. Your word which stands firm in the heavens. It's an eternal word. And I pray this morning as we look to your word and look to see what your word has to say. Father, we would be strengthened in the faith. And ready to live, ready to speak, ready to understand in a greater way what you have for us here in the days that you have ordained for us. May we be attentive to what you have to say this morning, Lord. We ask that you would speak and we pray that you'd help us to listen attentively. And then be doers of this word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the first minutes on the pulpit are the most favorable. So do not waste them with generalities, but confront the congregation straight off with the core of the matter. I'd like to do that this morning. The core of the matter. The core of the matter in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, comes packaged to us in a question. How can a young man cleanse his way? Or some of your translations may read... How can a young man keep his way pure? That's the question. That's the central question. It's the only question in this stanza. Well, here's the answer. The psalmist immediately unpacks it in the very next verse. Very next sentence, in fact. By taking heed... According to your word. Or by living that accords with God's word. By obedience to what God has to say in the Bible. How does a young man cleanse his way along life's journey? How does a young man keep his way pure for the long haul? The answer is by walking according to God's word, trusting that it holds forth the answers for righteous living. How is it that such a word, written so long ago, how can it still hold the answers for today's men and women? How is that possible? Well, I believe the central question of the text, the core of the matter in verse 9... This question raises some questions of its own. I'd like to give you a few questions that came to my attention as I was allowing that central question to kind of percolate in my mind this week and in my heart. First of all, is the psalmist asking a question solely for the young man? That was one of the questions that came out of that. Is this just for the young man? If so... What are the implications? What are the implications for the text? But what are the implications also for the preached word this morning? If it is true that this particular question applies only to the young man... ...then those of us who are older men and those of us who are women and young women... ...we could just very well exit this morning. Now I don't believe that this question is just for a young man... I do believe it relates very strongly to the young man. But it is not solely for the young man. How do I know? I'm not guessing. The text tells me the answer. When I look at the very next sentence, the answer to the central question, what I find there is that taking heed according to God's word is not something that only a young man is supposed to do. Young ladies are also supposed to do this. Older men are supposed to do this. Older women are supposed to do this. It's how we all are to keep pure in the long haul of life's journey. That's how we do it. It's according to, in obedience to, a walking by faith in this word. Another question that comes to mind is, okay, if it's not for just the young man, why then the reference to young man? How can a young man cleanse his way? A couple thoughts to put forward there. The psalmist very well could be writing from the standpoint of being older in his age, and he's writing this now as counsel, looking back, perhaps on his own life, or knowing that those who would be reading and hearing would be young men in particular that could benefit from this particular word as he's being moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's one of the holy men, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He's one of those holy men the scripture talks about who spoke as he was carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? These are the Psalms. But it also could have been ...submitted and put forward in light of the culture. Not only was the culture a dominant culture... ...in terms of concern for what the men were doing... ...but it could have been culture also from the standpoint of... ...hey, there are some concerns in the culture... ...that really would benefit a young man in particular... ...to hear these words. And that's still true today. Things happening going on in our culture that we address and we point to, and we we draw to the word in light of where someone may be, in light of the culture that we live in. There's another question that comes to mind To whom is this question primarily aimed? If we read the question, it has in mind how can a young man keep on cleansing his way? How can a young man keep his way pure? It's not talking necessarily about a one-time event, but how do we keep this going on? Speaking about keeping pure, ongoing cleansing, seems to be he's speaking to a follower of God, someone who is... ...aware of who God is and desires to walk with Him. So the audience is someone who already has some handle on God. Well, what does such a question teach us about the Hebrew Jewish culture? Remember that the Psalms were oftentimes prayed. The Psalms were oftentimes used as the Jewish hymn book. Okay? What does this particular question teach us about their culture? Well, one of the things we find out as we look at, the, and the scriptures are, are, are abound with the, these ideas. Clean, unclean. Pure, impure. Holy, unholy. We just take those words for just a moment. We see that In the life of of ancient Israel, purification was central and connected to their worship. Someone who was not clean was not allowed into the temple. In fact, one of the Bible dictionaries on this subject matter of purification... ...says purification qualified one to participate in worship which was an activity central to the life of ancient Israel. Breaking that purity was a serious matter. We think about what it is to be pure, flawless, refined, perfect. Something that's pure. And and, and in their culture, there was what we know as ritual purity, where one was free from impurity that would bar someone from contact with a holy object, right? There was also ethical purity, which was thought and behavior that was befitting the people of God. And such purity of thought is to result in conduct appropriate for God's people. Let me see an example of this. The question at least is asked in Psalm 15 verse 1 where the psalmist says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? It's a holy place. This is a side note. If holiness is not the desire of your heart here, heaven will be a miserable place for you. Because that's what it's going to be, holy. There's not going to be anything else there. Murderers, slanderers, sin, evil, wickedness, death, crime, all that stuff's gone. The old order, right? It's passed away. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's all those folks are saying. All the time. They're worshipping. I think it's clear that we understand some things about not only the culture of the day in which this is written. But understand even how that applies to us here and now today. Because you see, the culture of the psalmist and the immediate audience to whom he writes, they understood purity in high regard. Ethical impurity went right along in hand to hand with ritual uncleanness. Ethical purity went right along with ritual purity. They went together. But where one was impure, where one was unclean... The culture also had a means by which one could be cleansed. There were certain agents for cleansing if one found themselves in sin. And we see that there's water that's used. Leviticus chapter 15 gives us an example of that. Whenever there's a period of waiting for cleansing, oftentimes water was used. There's blood. We see that Leviticus 16, 14 through 19, talking about the Day of Atonement, talking about all the blood and the sprinkling of blood in the holy place, cleansing the temple. And there's fire. There's water, there's blood, and there's fire. Those are cleansing agents. And we see the fire was used in the sacrifices, right? These animals would be brought and they would be sacrificed on the altar. They would be killed, All of these things I'm hoping you are thinking ahead of what's yet to come. Because the very culture that they had was a culture that pointed to a time yet to come. When there would be one sacrifice. And there would be one who would come who would purify all men by his one sacrifice this one would be Jesus Christ. The spotless lamb of God. So cultural context is significant when addressing the central question. I believe that the central question in verse nine is central in large part because it leads us to an authoritative answer. You know, a lot of times we have a question today, we want to go to someone who's an authority, don't we? We don't just want to, have an answer from any body. We want an authority to be able to give us an answer. Well, the, the central question, it becomes a central question to us because it leads to an authoritative answer. And the answer is God's word. But the authoritative answer is predicated upon an authoritative person. And that would be God. And herein lies the object of the psalmist's affections. This is Psalm 119. His love for God, his love for God's word. Okay? That's what we have before us. The psalmist is unveiling something about the culture of ancient Israel. The authority is God. They refer to him as Yahweh. In fact, a lot of times they don't even, out of fear, they don't even say his name. It's Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. Reference. God. There was a fear. See, God was deemed holy. The temple was holy. The law of God was deemed holy. The high priest was holy. He was set apart for his work. God served in that day as the authority for those in Israel. As you consider that and consider then the culture of our day... How might you define our authority? Perhaps there was a day when it was one nation under God. I believe one of the best ways to characterize our culture today is simply by A picture. This phone, believe it or not, does take pictures. But I think you'll get the idea of what characterizes our culture today if I simply just do one of these and look at myself and click. What's that called? Anybody know what that's called? Seek cell. I knew there were going to be people that knew the answer to that question a selfie. A self, Isn't it interesting that it's called a selfie? That is the epitome. That's the descriptor of the culture we live in. You see, because a selfie is a picture taken by whom? Me. It's taken by me. It's a picture of me. Taken by me. For the benefit, oftentimes, of me. So that I can share with someone else Me. Author P.T. Forsyth writing in 1907. He's speaking of the culture of his day, a period of modernity. And here's how he described his culture it's frighteningly similar to the culture today. He described his culture as we are our own authority, we are our own authority. Sounds a lot like Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To each his own authority. Now, it's important to understand, not all in Israel operated according to the accepted authority of the culture, Yahweh, God Almighty. But all at least knew Yahweh as the held authority of the land. And we live among a people of unclean lips. We live among a perverse and wicked generation. We live among a largely faithless generation where truth is relative. It's pragmatic. It's subjective. It's based on what I might think it is. There is no absolute for many people. We live in the midst of a people who, like Ephraim, Hosea... Chapter 8, verse 12 speaks of Ephraim and having given Ephraim the law of God, the precious, wonderful, glorious gift of the law of God. And we seem to receive the word of God just like Ephraim did in the day. He received it, Ephraim did, as a strange thing. Authority in general is a strange thing today. But God is our authority, and God's word as the authority for how to live this life, that is deemed a strange thing indeed, by many in this culture. How can a young man cleanse his way? How can he keep his way pure? By living, taking heed, embracing, obeying by faith His word. As we study the text, perhaps it will serve you well to ask this question. Do I believe and by my actions behave as though God and his word are my authority? Do I believe and by my actions behave as though God and his word are my authority? Well, What follows... In Psalm 119, verses 10 through 16, I believe is an elaboration on the central question and answer in verse 9. You look at verse 10, he says, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. You know, as I was reading that, I was drawn back up to Psalm 119, verse 2, which says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. See, it's part of that way of blessing we talked about last week. God's way of blessing is keeping his word and seeking God himself. The psalmist has sought out God, his authority in life. This is instructive, I believe, for all of us, desiring to keep our way pure across the finish line of this life. There's evidence here of wholehearted devotion to God. Godliness characterizes the psalmist. Godliness. What is godliness? By definition, I'll give you one writer's definition, which I believe is pretty helpful to have a handle on this. Devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to him devotion to God which revo- results in a life that is pleasing to him godliness if you turn in your bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4 Paul's instruction here to Timothy is to reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise, or some of your translations would say, train. Exercise or train yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Godliness. It's profitable. And yet we see we're charged with exercising ourselves in this way. We're charged with training ourselves to be godly. That's the instruction from Paul to Timothy. Train yourself toward godliness. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Godliness, he says godliness is more than Christian character. It's Christian character that springs from a devotion to God. But it is also true, he writes, that devotion to God always results in godly character. He says devotion is not an activity, but it is an attitude toward God. Foundational to our godliness, our devotion to God, is our fear of God, our love for God, our desire for God. The implications of seeking God himself prior to godly character. This was was helpful to think through in terms of uh, parent, for example. Because I think most of us as parents, we desire to see godly character born in each one of our children, right? All of us, I think, desire that. I hope we desire that as parents. It's a right thing to desire that. But are we attempting to produce outcomes that only only are going to come through an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Are we training in such a way that helps each of the children seek God? See, Psalm 1611 says, you, God, you will show me the path of life. If God is the one who's going to show me the path of life, as a parent, I want to point my children to God. He's the one who's going to show them the path of life. That must be where my energies are for each of my children that he's entrusted to me. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, are we directing our children to seek the face of God in prayer? Are we directing them to turn their eyes upon him? to trust Him with all of their heart, to acknowledge Him in all of their ways. Desiring godly character in them is good. But let's not, parents, let's not be fooled or duped into thinking that certain godly behaviors are the end all. Do they know God? Do they know God's Son? Is there a devotion to God that's evident in their life? That's so important that we get this. And then dads and moms, what about your own life? This isn't just for the children. Are you seeking God with your whole heart? As you endeavor to keep your way pure, are you aligning yourself under the authority of God? The psalmist understands all too well, it seems, the difficulty level of keeping himself pure to the finish line. He says there at the end of verse 10, Oh, oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Let me not wander from your commandments. Proverbs nineteen twenty seven says, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Cease listening. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. No follower of God wakes up in the morning and decides that today is the day that I will begin to wander from God's commandments. Today's the day. I'm going to start it today. I don't believe it works that way. Wandering begins when someone or something fills the mind... And what fills the mind is determined in large part of what fills your eyes. What's passing through your eye gate? What are you watching? Hard to be holy when you're watching movies, things on the internet. That are unholy, impure, unclean. You've heard it said that the battle begins in the mind. Kyle Eidelman in his book *Gods at War*, he has a section in his book that speaks to the gods of pleasure in our culture today. Gods of pleasure and so he speaks in a chapter on entertainment he speaks as well about in this one particular chapter as we think about the battle being in the mind he speaks to how the brain processes information that's coming in through the eye gate and he says think about the effort of trying to carve a path through the woods It's tiring and it's challenging. You cut out the bushes and the vines and the saplings and the path is barely visible. But then people begin to use your path. And the ground becomes a well-trodden path that looks as if it's been there forever. And he goes on, he talks about the brain and how they've discovered today that the brain works in this very way. That a new thought is like a blazed trail. And it's actually, it's actually called, in their terminology, a neural pathway. And children, think about this. Children and teenagers, of which there are many here today. Children and teenagers are pushing back the wilderness of their young minds all the time, creating these roads of thought, he says. But how does this idea relate to wandering Why is the psalmist so concerned about wandering from God's commandments? You know, I was thinking about this and I was reminded of David. And we're all familiar with David in 2 Samuel 11. When it was the spring, it was the time of war. And yet David the king was not out to war, but he was where? He was at home and he couldn't sleep at night. It was late. He goes out and he sees someone. Bathsheba text says she's very beautiful. She was bathing. And a lot of us look at 2 Samuel 11 and immediately think that was his point. That was his time of wandering. That's where it began. I I don't know that it did there. Because if you back up a few chapters in 2 Samuel chapter 5, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, what you see is that he was Moving from Hebron, he was now going to be king over all of Israel at this point. And the text says in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that he took on additional concubines and wives in Jerusalem. That's interesting. That happened six chapters, give or take, prior to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You see, this slow fade, this this wandering And Eidelman, he gives an example, and it's interesting that he gives the example from the life of a young man, because the psalmist is asking the question, the central question here in Psalm 119 is that of a young man. How can a young man keep his way pure? And Eidelman says, imagine a young man who has laid down his own mental highway. He ends up viewing Pornography. And that particular neural pathway becomes the main road. In time, it's the default route for any thought about a woman he meets. And lustful thinking only reinforces those roads. Friends, what trails are being blazed in your minds? What trails? Some of you sit here today and you've got trails that have been blazed in your mind... You have taken in something through your eye gate. You have something there. It's filtered in. And you have this new trail that's been blazed. Straying from God's commandments will result in chaos and confusion. Moving you farther from God. Wandering minds will begin blazing new trail after new trail. And after a while, they will grow accustomed to the appetite of these new roads of thought. This is dangerous territory. This is high alert. This is the beware, the watch out. That the scripture talks about. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. As a safeguard to this end, look at verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let's go back to the central question. How can a young man cleanse his way? How can he keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. What the text teaches is this that the Bible is integral for keeping pure all the way to the finish line. The Bible is, His word. It's vital. Necessary. No Bible. No God's word. No adherence to what God has to say. Disobedience to this word cultivates uncleanness. Cultivates impurity. Cultivates unholy life. Having just cried out to God, let me not wander from your commandments... He now submits what what appears to be for him and it's not just useful for him. I believe it's also good for all of us. He submits, I think, a battle plan. This is a plan for moving forward. How he's going to combat this. Your word, which is needed. It's not an optional extra add-on. For the psalmist, this is, a needed word. Your word have I hidden in my heart for what purpose? That I might not sin against God. I believe a good majority of us here know this verse. The sad reality of this verse is that I believe that the same number of people who know this verse, there may be very few people in here who actually know and have any of his word hidden in their heart. It's a nice verse to learn. It sounds good to know it. Is it here? Do we really have it hidden in our heart? The word hidden has in mind to store up. To store up. Proverbs 2 verse 1 says, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you. Treasure is that word. Same word. The rendering there is treasure. And I read Proverbs 2.1 because the translation there speaks to the motive behind storing up. We, we store up God's word in our heart because we treasure it. That's why we store it up. Friends, listen, the converse is also true. If we are not storing up God's word in our heart, what are we hiding in there? Whatever it may be, you know, whatever it may be, that's your treasure. How do I know that? Because God's Word tells me. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, what's going to be there? Your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Notice the psalmist has God's word hidden in his heart. In his heart. Some of us have been content hiding it in our minds. We've got it. And there's some wonderful scripture memory programs out there, not knocking any of them. All of them are endeavoring to get the word of God in you. Praise God. It's what we need. But we must be careful. Because knowing Psalm 119, verse 11... ...your word I have hidden in my heart... ...that I might not sin against you... ...knowing that... ...I can recite it... ...and maybe you're sitting here today... ...and you can recite X number of verses... ...you know them. The psalmist says... ...I've hidden your word in my heart. You know, there are some folks... ...you might know some of these folks... ...who have, as they've grown older... ...they've come to realize... That they really didn't know God. Oh, they knew him up here. They knew the facts because they grew up in a Christian home. And they knew all the Bible stories. But they didn't have him in his heart. They weren't living for the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. The psalmist here has said that he's hidden the word in his heart... That he might not sin against God. You know, I don't get the idea that the psalmist is storing up God's word merely to recite it. I I don't picture that. I don't believe for a moment that the psalmist is simply storing up God's word in his heart so that he might be able to recite it. In fact, the context tells me that he's storing up the word of God out of need to live a pure and holy life before God. He needs it. And do you see the reason that he stores it up? That he might not sin against God. Friends, I've heard many excuses and I've used a few of my own in the day. About why people can't memorize scripture. We store up what we treasure. We store up what we treasure. Some of you guys in here are sports guys. You like, you like sports. You like basketball. You like football. You like baseball. You like soccer. Whatever it is. And if it took the time to had a conversation with you, you could recite to me and spit out to me all kinds of statistics. All kinds of stats. Tell me your favorite players. Tell me their numbers. You, you could, you got it. You know it. It's important to you. And what we're going to find out here in just a moment, something like riches or money, Something that for many people in here, the eyes light up. Money. Well, the psalmist says that he delights in this word as much as in all riches. Do you get excited as much about God's word and storing his word up in you as you do? Whatever your treasure might be in your heart. Accumulating a bunch of money. Sports. Hobby. Fill in the blank. Whatever that treasure is, you know what it is. As you sit here this morning, you know what it is. What are you storing up in your heart? Another question that comes to the surface here as we're reading is, does sin matter to you? Does it matter to you? See, the psalmist presents a correlation, I believe, between storing up the word and not sinning. He also recognizes that his sin is against God and sin appears to bother him. He's storing up the word that he might not sin. Sin seems to bother him. He seems to understand something about the nature and character of God, that he is a holy God. We serve a holy God and holiness and sin, they don't walk together. They don't. Storing up God's Word in your heart will be of benefit in your battle against sin. And we've talked on occasion, Ephesians 6, we spent several weeks talking about the battle that we're in and the need to take up the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's part of our armor. N A. Wocek has written a book, very helpful book. and in large part it's speaking to the idea of hiding God's word in your heart. He says, the problem in memorization is not generally one of ability, but of desire. Not ability. It's desire. Devotion, Godliness. Matthew 5 verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. See, taking heed to God's word includes hiding it in the heart. It's used to combat the sin that so easily ensnares the follower of God. And it's almost, as you get to the end of 11, it's almost as if he's stuck on the greatness of God. I love this. Because he transitions right from 11 into 12. And he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I was drawn to the hymn, the the opening line. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Does your heart this morning need a tune-up? sing his praise. Teach me, Lord, your statutes. See, in an effort to store up God's word, there's a question here for us. Have you ever asked God to teach you his word? You see, we come up with all these grand excuses as to why we don't hide it in our heart, store it in our heart. Have you ever asked God to teach you His Word? See, God knows someone who actually knows this Word really well Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit opens our understanding of this Word. In fact, the next stanza, that's what He's crying out for. Open my eyes, verse 18, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes. We need our eyes to be open that we might be able to see what he has for us in his word. The Holy Spirit, as we read in the New Testament, is our greatest teacher available to us. We see in verse 10, with my whole heart I have sought you. In verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart. The picture that's here is of a psalmist who is consumed with God and his word. He's brimming over, in fact, with God. He's godly, he's thinking much about God. And the remainder of this stanza, I believe, is a flurry of reinforcements to describe where his heart is the reinforcements and they just come in bullet-like fashion. First one, verse 13. With my lips, I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. See, he can do that now because he's stored up God's word. Seems his treasure has catapulted him out. I love this. It's catapulted him out of his study and into the street. With my lips, I've declared all the judgments of your mouth. See, I don't get the impression that the psalmist is sitting in the room with his door closed, declaring all of God's righteous judgments. What's he doing? He's speaking it. How does he do that? He has it. It's hard to speak what we don't have. Not only that, Having God's word in him brings confidence to open his lips to speak of his great treasure. You remember the guy in Matthew in one of the parables where he's going along and he's walking in the field and he discovers this treasure chest. It's not his property. So he immediately puts it back in there and covers it up and he goes back home. And you remember what he does? He sells everything that he has so that he can buy the treasure Friends, when he got the treasure, what do you think he did with it? Do you think he kept it to himself? We have been given a great treasure in this word, one of God's greatest gifts. The greatest gift he gave was Christ himself. But this, he reveals himself to us, lets us in on who he is. And we say, on many occasions, thank you, but... No thanks. We have been given this word. Yes, verse 9, verse 11, we emphasize those two verses. But what we're seeing right here is the reinforcement. When we have his word stored up in us, we then, with our lips, are going to declare all of his judgments. All the judgments from his mouth. All of what he's spoken. Guess what that means? That means that God's people get to put God's word into play in God's world. It's a novel idea. We get to share God's word. We get to share the very thing that we treasure. We get to share it. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Here's the problem. I don't believe that there are many people following Jesus today who have that as their treasure. And because they don't have him as their treasure... Their lips aren't declaring all the judgments of God. Their lips, in fact, are declaring the very same things that the world is declaring. How do I know? All you got to do is sit in on conversation. Very, very few people who are going to put God's word into play. I love this. Look at verse fourteen. He says, "I have rejoiced." Not only with my lips have I declared all the judgments of your mouth, I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. So not only is he declaring God's word, but he's rejoicing in it. He's rejoicing in it. Now, what's this? A dollar. And when I pulled that out, I just saw his eyes. His eyes went. I didn't, I didn't set him up for that either. I didn't talk to him before the message. But you see, this dollar bill does something, doesn't it? It does something. You see a dollar bill. All of a sudden, like right now, all of you are more awake. You're paying more attention right now because I have this dollar bill out in front of me. Now, perhaps some of you older ones are not as excited. You're thinking to yourself, it's only a dollar. If I had a $100 bill hanging out here, you might be sitting up a little higher. But some of you younger ones, a dollar is a lot to you. That's a hundred pennies. You see, we think about what we rejoice over. Think about what we delight in. We get pretty excited about this. This is pretty exciting. It's nice to have it in your pocket. Some of you like... Spend it. Some of you don't keep it in your pocket very long. Do you rejoice in something like this more so than this? The psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, in what this word teaches. I've rejoiced in this as much as in all riches. Some of you men may be prone to say I'm just not very emotional. Think about rejoicing from the heart, rejoicing. But men, I would say that if, if I were to put you in the midst of your treasure, whatever that treasure we talked about earlier is, it could be a, could be a game. Football, basketball game. Could be your favorite team. If I set you in front of your favorite team for just a moment, I guarantee you're going to have some emotion. I guarantee you're going to have something to say about it. Guarantee there's going to be some kind of feeling toward that. How is it that we can be numb toward this word? I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, as much as in all riches. The psalmist has God's word stored up in him and he's rejoicing in it. He's rejoicing in the word. Listen, it's important we understand God's word. His commandments are not burdensome. First John tells us that. They're not burdensome. His truth is where we walk in freedom. There's freedom. Jesus talked about in the gospel. John. We go in and out, find pasture. Jesus came that we might have life abundant. Does God's word cause rejoicing in your heart? Is your heart out of tune? We talked about that earlier. Is it out of tune to receive God's word? Remember the parable that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4. He he, he talks about the the sower sowing the seed. And that seed that goes out, it lands on a hard path. Some of it lands on a stony path. Some of it lands on a thorny path. And then some of it lands on a good path. And all of those paths are representative of what? heart. When the word goes forth, the word is going forth and it's going to land on a heart... Some of the hearts, hard. Some of the hearts, stony. Might take off for a while, but when persecution comes because of the word, some of them are thorny. The deceitfulness of wealth, right? Cares of this world, what do they do? Choke the word. But then there are some whose hearts are good. And what do we mean by good? There are some hearts who actually receive and accept the word and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times for God and his kingdom. Is your heart ready to receive God's word? Just by the fact that you're sitting in a chair today doesn't mean that you have a good heart ready to receive God's word. Praise God you're here. It's part of it. Hearing, taking in his word. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Look at, look at the next one. Verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. The psalmist is not treating his spiritual intake as a classroom session, but as a lifelong journey. Storing up God's word is fuel for him to meditate and contemplate throughout his day. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 talks about in his law he meditate the blessed man meditates day and night. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 God's telling Joshua, he's now the new leader and he's telling him as the new leader of the people how he must lead. Here's how you're going to lead. Make sure this book of the law does not depart from your mouth. Make sure that you take in this word day and night. This is how you're going to lead the people, Joshua. I will meditate on your precepts, contemplate your ways. Why would the psalmist do such a thing? Because God's word is what keeps him pure and holy. God's word is what keeps him, he's, he's trying to live in the world as you and I are trying to do the same thing. We're living in a world that's dark, a world that's impure, a world that's not too concerned about holiness. God's word is what he's seeking. God himself is who he's seeking. And we think about word intake He's talking about meditating and contemplating. But we hear today, you're having an opportunity to hear God's Word. You yourself can read God's Word. You yourself can study God's Word. You can memorize God's Word or hide it in your own heart. You then can meditate upon this Word. You can think about it in your coming and going using your discretionary time to meditate and contemplate His ways in His Word. And having His Word in you, you can do what verse 13 says. You can declare with your lips. You can share this Word. You can be a witness. You can evangelize with this Word. See, word intake is for the soul. Our souls get nourished in the word, friends. Look at verse 16. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God's word is not a burden to the psalmist, but a, as the uh, line of Proverbs 15 15 says. It's a continual feast. That's what it is for the psalmist. And we go back to the central question. How can a young man cleanse his way? And we saw the answer by taking heed. According to your word. By living out his life in obedience by faith. According to the word. And he concludes here by adding this last line. I will not forget your word. By the way, just as a, a side note, verse 16a, the first part of it. When he says, I will delight myself in your word. I will delight myself. You know, the fact that he puts that word in there tells me something. It tells me that even though there may be a lot of other people around him who aren't going to delight themselves in the word. I, it's like a resolve we talked about last week. I will, I will delight Myself. I will delight myself in your statutes. This is what I'm going to do. There are going to be a lot of people around me that aren't going to choose to do this, but this is what I'm going to do. He's resolving to do this, not try harder, as we talked about last week, but he's going to be diligent. He's going to be diligent to keep God's precepts, understanding he needs God's presence in the process. And he says, in the end, I will not forget your word. I will not forget your word. Think about that as the conclusion to this stanza. I'm not planning to wander. I'm not planning to go a different direction than what God's called me to go. I'm planning to hold fast your word. I'm storing up your word, in fact not going to forget it. I'm not going to neglect it. I'm planning to seek God with all my heart. I'm planning to walk a pure, holy, clean life for the Lord with His presence moving in me. The Word says a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. What we're talking about, it's important that we understand. We're not talking about the psalmist who's living a perfect life. We're talking about psalmists who understood that even if he sinned he was resolving to delight himself in God and in his word. And he knew where to take his sin. Just like David. David knew where to take his sin. I'm planning to take my sin to you if it happens but i'm not making my plans to sin friends that's important in fact first john chapter 2 in first john chapter 2 says my little children these things i write to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous these things i write says john ...so that you may not sin. I was reading... ...Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges this week. And and it struck me as I was reading... he, he, ...he had come across and encountered this particular passage... ...in his own reading of scripture. And he said it dawned on him how... ...John's view of sin seemed to be a little different than my view of sin. Because he, he seemed to, to advocate, as he's reading First John, and saying that John seems to be pointing out and saying that he's writing so that you would aim not to sin. And the thought came to him. And I believe this thought is probably one that many of us have, have shared. With him? Has it been our aim simply to not sin very much? Or is it our aim not to sin? You see, because the difference between those two questions... ...speaks about a pursuit of holiness... ...a desire to be godly... ...a devotion to God... ...that results in a life that's pleasing to Him if we know that devotion to God that results in a life pleasing to him, we know with certainty based on what the word says that sin isn't pleasing to him. The Hebrew writer in chapter 12, verse 14, says that we're to pursue peace with all men and godliness without which no one will see God. Holiness without which No one will see God. Matthew chapter 5, part of those beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. The pure in heart will see God. Aim not to sin. And understand that if we do sin, the good news is we have an advocate before the Father. His name is Jesus. And just as we talked about the whole idea and the aim of what we're to be treasuring in our heart, it can't be, our lives can't be, as we're running this race in the midst of of the world and the culture we live in, our lives cannot be run in such a way that we are aiming not to sin very much. It's like the soldier who's sent in the battle, and his objective then is not to get hit very much. Would a soldier go into battle with that objective? Or the defensive coordinator of the football team? He sends his guys out on the field, and he says, "Hey guys." Come on, let's go. Don't let them score very much. Is he going to say that? No, because the objective is to not let them score. You send a defense on the field so that they don't score. The objective here is that we would not sin. The central question speaks to keeping your way pure and holy. And it's a question that confronts us each day. God is holy. His word is holy. He sent His Son, the incarnate one, Jesus Christ who's holy. And He came to declare God to us. He came and fulfilled the holy will of His Father. I think it's important to end in the place where we talked earlier about Context of ancient Israel and their emphasis upon being clean, being holy, being pure, the purification. See, there was a day when Christ came and Christ Himself purified all men who by faith believe and receive Him. Christ was that perfect Lamb of God who was sacrificed once and for all. He laid down his life that we might be not only justified, but sanctified. Sanctified, set apart, pure, holy. We're to be a people, Jesus himself said, right before he went to the cross. Whose lives align with the truth. The truth which was defined by Jesus himself as the word. This is how we were to live. This is is his prayer to the father of how his followers were to live. And part of that living involves exactly what we're reading about here in Psalm 119, 9 through 16. How can a young man cleanse his way? How can he keep his way pure? How can he keep his way in a, a holy path throughout the remainder of his days? I think we know the ultimate answer to the question. Jesus is the one who makes this holy living possible. And Jesus has given to us his word and we've been given his spirit to help guide us and lead us in this way. But there's also an element in the scripture of working out your salvation, friends. God, the way I see God in the scriptures, oftentimes he's not not zapping people to all of a sudden make them godly. Exercise yourself, train yourself to be godly. Here's why. It has value not only for this life right here and now, but it has value for life to come. Translated? The treasure you enjoy now, and you're rejoicing and delighting in that treasure you have now, being in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His Word. You get to enjoy that treasure forevermore. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen? If you have your Bible, hold on to it for just a moment. Pick it up. It may be in your, uh, your, your, your phone. That's fine if that's where yours is hiding. But if you have your Bible, let's read. I'll be reading the New King James. I'd like us just to read this together as we close. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. You can read it with me, by the way. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father, may it be so for us that your word would go with us all of our days, that it would be in us all of our days that it would be our desire to please you as we endeavor to live a holy life. We're called to live a holy life simply because you said, be holy because I'm holy. You've called us to this kind of living. And it begins with a devotion to you, a training in godly living exercising our faith. Those here who have professed and said yes to Jesus and said, yes, I know him, but do not walk in his ways. The Bible says that that person is a liar and the truth is not in him. Oh, Father, may it be said of us that we do know you and that we do walk in your ways and that we do have a desire to treasure this word, store it up, To hide it in our hearts. That we might not sin against you. You are a holy God. I pray that here in this room. Our sin. The sin that so easily entangles. That sin would bother us greatly. It would bother us. And cause us to fall on our knees. And come before you. And repent of our sin. And turn from our sin. And turn in faith to God. And that we might pursue you. And pursue your word with others, with those who also call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And Father, I pray that our lives would be a a testimony, a catalog, a display of works befitting a repentant life. I pray that our lives would be spent for your purposes and your glory. You've placed us here for that very reason, to glorify you and enjoy you. May you and may your son Jesus Christ in particular be our great treasure. And may we take Christ wherever we go and take your words with us wherever we go. I pray, Father, that it would be evident to everyone we encounter that you, are our greatest treasure. May it be so, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.